shut up and listen. Seriously. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> shut up and listen. Um, I have a couple of very good peers and friends in the industry that do a variety of things. And um, one of the biggest pieces of recommendations comes from a book that is sometimes you're just better off not talking and expressing your opinions, listening, and then trying to formulate your answers incredibly coherently. In other words, don't mm -hmm. speak too frequently for the sake of speaking. But the point being is if you limit the amount that you talk and you're very concise with your answers, people will tend to listen to you more. Welcome to the CEO Sessions, hosted by Ben Fanning. And here's Ben. Are you a leader with a book idea? It can be tough to write your book because when you're leading a team and working a full-time job, where do you find the time and energy? Well, I'll tell you, it's much easier when your boss and your company both support your book project. And when I wrote my first book, The Quit Alternative, the blueprint for creating the job you love without quitting, I tried and failed to garner my company's support. Wow, that I wish I'd had it at the time. Enter my CEO session interview today with Beyond Trust Executive and Chief Information Security Officer, Maury Haber, who's actually written three books, all supported by his company. So if you're a leader with a book idea that you'd like to get done, then this episode is for you. Here's a little bit of what you'll discover in today's episode, how Maury wrote three books while still being a global executive and delivering on the results, making your book writing project a win-win for you and your company, the proven strategy to get your boss and company on board to support your book. And then we dive into the advice he'd give his younger self, employee turnover and accountability success strategies. And then we dive into some really practical tips around negotiating. And we wind up with a really cool gadget that you're going to want to hear all about that he uses to help fuel success in his workday. Enjoy. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Hey, Maury, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, we're going to have a great episode. Been looking forward to this one, Maury. So let's kick this thing off. Tell us about your first job. <laughs> My first job was actually working for the family business. Uh, I grew up uh, between Florida and New York, back and forth a little bit, okay. uh, depending on my parents' employment. And my parents had a jewelry store in Brooklyn, New York. So my first job was actually working for the family business, learning how to put in watch batteries, uh, fix chains, change the length of a watch band, just as you know, things go, family business and working there. But my first real job really was a reliability engineer. Out of college, I was working on flight simulators, doing testing, and uh, that was a lot of fun. It gave me a lot of knowledge about how to build electronics, how reliable they could be, and actually what could happen if they break. Well, step in one, going back to what you said about working in the jewelry business as a kid. I, so I lived in New York City for a while, and I worked for a company, DHL, and there was a lot of diamond shipping. And people would mm -hmm. say, and you might know about this, I'm curious what your take on it, is people say, Ben... Uh, you would be surprised about how many millions of dollars of diamonds are just walking around in people's pockets, uh, <laughs> walking through the diamond districts in New York City. Uh, did you ever have that, any experience with that? 
We did. Um, we used regular DHL and FedEx to ship jewelry all around. And the uh -huh. insurance companies at the time would put special riders to make sure that nothing got stolen. But we'd also have peddling salesmen. And uh, they wouldn't show up with suitcases and briefcases or wheelies or anything to bring it in. Uh, some of the old school guys would literally carry brown lunch bags with the jewelry <laughs> in it to be completely non-discreet. And you would never know if that lunch bag had a rip or something else, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in merchandise Ooh. that they were peddling at the time. But this wow. is going back to the early 80s. So this is this is a little dated. I don't think that occurs today. <laughs> well, you never know, I guess. But yeah, I'm trying to imagine. Yeah. Is that a brown lunch bot or a, a lunch sack or is that a just a sack with a bunch of diamonds in it. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it was literally like when, uh, if you grew up 30, 40 years ago, it would be huh. that Brown paper bag and maybe have a couple of them that you literally had small little plastic baggies of envelopes with diamonds and jewelry and anything else that you were peddling. They would just walk around like it was their lunch sack going to work. Uh, <laughs> the salesmen were not well-dressed. You would not mistake them for anybody else. So they did not stick out in the crowd. It just like looked like someone on their wow. lunch break. So this is this is a perfect segue into your title as the chief security officer. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you got your start in security and jewelry. I don't know. Maybe maybe indirectly, <laughs> but tell us a little bit about your role, and also tell us about what's so special about working at Beyond Trust. Well, actually, jewelry industry is unrelated. I started working with computers when I was about 13 years old. Mm -hmm. um, I was given a computer, a Radio Shack TRS-80. And during oh, the heavy cool. snows of that radio, uh, that winter, I learned uh -huh. basic programming from the manuals. I literally page by paged it. Um, throughout high school and college, very interested in computers. And that first job or my first real job that I mentioned doing reliability engineering, mm -hmm. um, I was tasked with making a database to store failure information for electronic parts. Hmm. Uh, that led me to getting more into computers, working for a VAR, and then to computer associates doing network management, beta products, and the like. With all of that in mind and doing new product developments, many times we'd have outages. We didn't know why. And sometimes it was viruses. Sometimes it was poor code. But hmm. the virus trail led me into security. And basically 20 years later, uh, now the chief security officer for a leading uh, privileged, excuse me, a leading privileged access management solution company in the marketplace, heading up the mm. internal security and cloud security for the company. And so when you say privileged, what does that mean? Privileged so, access. Yeah. So a privileged yeah. account is any account that has risk associated with it. Things okay. that can be done with the account that could cause malicious intent, steal data, reconfigure it, allow the installation of malicious software, et cetera. So typically people think of that as administrative and root accounts, mm -hmm. but sometimes even lower level accounts that could be associated with posting something on social media or configuring a database can fall into that category if they can be abused, if they were compromised. So basically anything that's an account for something sensitive, it's the management thereof. Yeah. You know, you think about security access and right now, uh, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and there's been an awful lot of people that have been working remotely. And I suspect that a lot of organizations just went remotely, you know, overnight and have continued to be remote, but are they really taking security seriously? That's the scary part. So with everybody working from home, the quote dissolving perimeter accelerated, 
we now had to allow access to resources remotely that someone mm-hmm. may have done traditionally on a raised floor in a trusted network within an office. Yeah. So with that in mind, the statistics show that there was an increase, a 50% increase of RDP, remote desktop protocol by Windows, exposed on the internet in 2020. That was to wow. facilitate all these people working from home. But yeah. 52% of all ransomware comes from enabling RDP. So while people tried to work quickly overnight, we opened up, uh, we exposed more risk. We enabled services that are not necessarily secure and had to find a better way to do that. Even for the admins and the IT admins and everybody else that now had to work from home, those exposures created the additional risk that uh, pretty much has plagued industry for the rest of 2020 and even to today. Yeah, so Beyond Trust is a growing company, obviously, and there's a lot of action going on with the remote working movement and whatnot during the pandemic. Let's talk a little bit about your specific role. I know that it recently changed. You went from wearing two hats down to one. People listening may have experience in being part of a reorg or you know trying to figure out the best way to position uh, different hats inside a growing company. And as the needs change and the focus changes, what's the experience been like for you? It's an interesting transition and one that I'm still adapting to. Mm -hmm. My previous role was CTO and CISO, Chief Information Security Officer. I oversaw the high-level strategy for the organization in terms of the product's direction, but the internal security and cloud security for our solutions. But as the company's been growing, we've had several, or I've had several challenges doing both roles. One is just Mm -hmm. pure time management. I can put the best people working for me, but it's still time management of having diverse Mm -hmm. responsibilities. So being able to share the CTO role and give it to a professional that I've known for years to be able to say, help me get my products to the next level has been fantastic. I dropped the information word for my title. Now it's chief security officer. So I'm Mm -hmm. still doing internal security and cloud security, but I also have to now consider physical security. So Uh, like many organizations, mm -hmm. we have presence all over the world. We are ISO certified. Physical is just as important while people may be in the office or out of the office. So concepts like that are now part of my responsibilities. And even though that may seem like a very small thing to add physical, all of the governance, all of the GRC, all the other responsibilities for SOC certification, ISO certification, Mm -hmm. pursuing FedRAMP ultimately come to me as well. Hence the expanded role and the focus that I need as a part of So how do you, you know, as a senior leader, uh, it just is, was it difficult to let go of that? I know so many leaders, you know, they spend so much time getting their, getting this high profile job and you've got these two big positions under one, and then you let you know have to let it go. It sounds like you've got a, a great friend, qualified person to take it over. But was it? I'm sure it was probably hard, somewhat, right? To to relinquish that. How do you like for someone listening uh, today to this podcast? If they know that their role needs to change in some way, you know, how do you go? Like, what's the mindset that they should be thinking about to to let go of something so maybe they can go deeper Make on it easier? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there's two ways of looking at it. If you have to turn over responsibilities to someone else, 
You could be forced into do it and not agree with the person taking it. That makes it incredibly hard to relinquish control. Mm-hmm. Or you can give it to someone that you know, you've interviewed, you've vetted, you trust, or you may have worked with in the past. All other really good reasons. When you know that you can trust someone implicitly to do the job to the best of their abilities, and you have no problem turning it over to them, it becomes part of that teamwork experience that hopefully Mm -hmm. most organizations embrace. I have no trouble turning it over to them because I know that they can do the job, if not as good or even better than I did. And if they make mistakes, they will not hesitate to say, hey, how would you have done that? So I think that trust has made it easy to, to basically say, here's the ball. Yeah, that's so cool because it's, you know, a lot of times, even as, a, even as, if you're a solopreneur, you're, if you're the owner of a small business or you're an executive inside an organization, it can be hard. And sometimes it's that perspective of no one can do it better than me. But you know what? There probably always is somebody there out always there. Always is, always. And by you getting involved in the process of the interviewing, you can be part of the solution and make sure that when you let go of it, you know, you're, you're letting go of it in a way that's positive and you feel good about. Um, so let's, let's move into a different area. So you're, you're one of these executives who, you know, you're a global, a global executive, yet you've written three books. Correct. What in the world, Maury, how do you find time <laughs> to do this? And what, you know, what, what's, what's your experience been like writing books as an executive and, what's your, what's your perspective on that? Yeah. So I actually started my first book, uh, approximately four plus years ago, and I was only a vice president at the time. And I have to say only, cause it, to me, <laughs> only. I at that only, uh-huh. um, it actually started as a challenge. Um, I am a prolific writer. I do write a lot for Forbes and a variety of other periodicals. And some people have odd outlets, whether it's cycling, whether it's, Uh, physical activity, whether it's woodworking, painting, I actually like to write. I know that sounds strange to many, (laughs) probably many of the listeners, Uh but I was challenged based on the volume of my writing by my my CEO at the time and uh, my CTO at the time. Why don't you take all the writings and put it together in a book? I asked my CTO at the time for some assistance and he graciously agreed and we published my first book. Okay. That took about- the The company published it? No, we actually used a third-party publisher, A Press okay. Media, but um, they allowed me to write it on company time. So yes, I did cool. a lot on the weekend, but when I had my own downtime during regular work hours, it was sanctioned to actually do. Wow. Uh, second book, um, basically did the first one and like, yay, I got a book out. Congratulations. Now what? Well, why don't you do another one? You did so well with the Okay. Put my head down. So this one's going to be a pain because this one literally was going to be from scratch. And I cranked that out. Um, When I took the CTO role on and the third book, I knew I was over my head. Um, I wanted to do something that was different. And I enlisted a colleague of mine as the co-author. And uh, between the brainstorming we did and delays, because I had busted my hand midway through writing the book and took me out of commission for six months. Um, about a year and a half later, we cranked out the third book and recently was just reviewed by an independent party and given top 10 identity management books in the industry that was been written. So a great award to receive. So three books later, literally just brain dumps uh, as a writer to say, look, this is what I know. This is what I experience. This is what I get from my job, from working with other CISOs, let me put it into coherent form that others can benefit from. So it's an outlet. 
no other better way of putting it. It's the knowledge I'm gaining, it's the conversations I'm having, and a way for me to recommunicate it back out to other CISOs and practitioners. So the themes of the book, like the heart and soul is all about CISOs, so security inside organizations, right? And you Pretty take a much. different perspective on, on a, a different a different take in each of the third in each of the three books. Is that correct? That's correct. So the first okay. one is privileged attack vectors covering the privileged access management space, the space beyond trust covers, asset attack vectors covering vulnerability management, exploits, and patch management. So it's the other side of exploitation of a host if you're not patching for security. And the third book is identity attack vectors, which covers identity governance and identity access management as a whole. And just as a mm -hmm. little tidbit, working on another one, that one's probably about six months to a year out, um, but we'll talk about that another time. Well, great, great about that. I'm, I'm not surprised after you've done three, you'll just keep rolling. I think yep. from the listener's perspective, I think one of the things that's really interesting here is that you had an idea and you took it to the CEO and they were supportive. And it sounds like you must've done a great job of weaving in your expertise and the thought leadership aspirations of the entire organization. They wanna be able to say, right, that we have an expert here in Maury and hey, here are our books coming out because it's gotta benefit the company in some way, right? I mean, That's what was correct. that? Can you take us back to that conversation? What was it like bringing, so, bringing that up? Yeah. So the conversation really started with my CTO and then went to the CEO, as I've indicated. And really it was around the amount of writing that I was doing to support marketing efforts, white papers, business initiatives, blogs, okay. et cetera. You flexed your proverbial muscle in writing in the name of the company on the, on the company blog and the marketing materials first. Right. Okay. Most of the material was not company specific. In fact, it was generally educational. This gotcha. is how you conduct this. This is how you best secure privileges. This is the highest risk of not doing X, Y, Z. This is the yes. outcome of not doing these steps to prevent ransomware. And my writing is generally very generic. I try very hard to not make it company specific or definitely not product specific because there are a hundred ways of solving these problems in the security mm -hmm. industry. But once you get the guidance out there, people can then, you know, basically modify their strategies or find intent in other products to mm -hmm. get them to where they need to be. So the first book was a collection of a lot of the work that I was doing modified to make it a book, mm -hmm. but also express exactly what you said, the thought leadership that, Hey, if you're going to consider my company, you want to understand that they all do have thought leadership and here's the material to support that. Now I have to say bluntly, I can't take credit for the whole book. And I do cover that in the prefix. Mm -hmm. My CTO at the time did help with contributing chapters. And I had a lot of help from SCs to product managers at that time with different sections. So in that case, I was working more like an editor, bringing the material together and making it coherent. And then even listening my graphic artists uh, at the time to help put the illustrations together to make it meaningful. So never think of writing a yeah. book as, oh my God, I got to do it all myself. If you have the power, there are plenty of people that would love to see their name in print and they got the appropriate credit. And that, that is such a unique perspective. So I wrote a book uh, that, that did pretty well when I was inside a company, but the organization, despite my best efforts, did not support it. They supported me in theory, but not from really, they're like, Ben, some of that, uh, some of what you've written is about our, you know, uh, our company could get behind, but some of that 
we cannot really get behind her. The CEO didn't feel like they could support it entirely, you know, which I, which I respect, but you did a couple things. I think that was really interesting. Number one was they got to know you as a writer before you started working on the book. So they knew you had the writing chops, right? They knew you had that skill set to offer. Number two, you got other people on board with the ideas before you started writing. And it sounds like, it sounds like you really got them involved And and three, you actually got them to contribute to the book and become right. part of the book or, or part of the uh, part of the project. So when it came to the final product, it sounds like they were fully behind it. They were fully behind it. And some of them went so far above and beyond what I ever even asked them to do. Um, the only thing I could do was send them a gift card. I mean, to be fair, <laughs> you make no money writing a book. I mean, right, right. You, yeah. you don't. It's pennies on a copy. This is not like what you see on the bestseller list or where a governor makes $5 million for uh, his memoirs. This is pennies. But people get a lot of pride in it to them. It's a part of their resume and brand building to be able to say, look, I was the illustrator for these books or I sure. was the editor for these books and they're you know, properly acknowledged, they're covered. No, they're not the author per se, but um, that's a very powerful motivator for people when they actually can see their final work being recognized out in the marketplace. Such a great example. Um, although I have not run across many examples like yours where you've kind of brought together your strengths uh, in, in a way that's so darn creative and bringing everybody else along and also helping the company. So Thank you. Strong work on that. So let's let's kind of wrap up this little section by talking about what's the piece of advice if you met yourself today, your your younger self, what's that piece of advice that that you would give them? Shut up and listen. Seriously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Shut up and listen. Um, I have a couple of very good peers and friends in the industry that do a variety of things. And um one of the biggest pieces of recommendations comes from a book that is sometimes you're just better off not talking, expressing your opinions, listening, and then trying to formulate your answers incredibly coherently. In other words, don't mm -hmm. speak too frequently for the sake of speaking. But the point being is if you limit the amount that you talk and you're very concise with your answers, people will tend to listen to you more and mm -hmm. in more detail than just constantly interjecting every few minutes, every few sentences, uh, especially on a conference room or in a dialogue. So be very thoughtful about what you say, be very constructive, and don't just say something for the sake of saying it, make sure it's appropriate and meaningful. So shut up and listen is my best advice to my younger yeah. self. Yeah, and shut up and listen is actually can be difficult to follow. And especially if your conversational patterns are different, sometimes I have to catch myself in that, you know, hey, I'm, these are just filler words. Uh, and <laughs> it happens, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you hear the discussion, you can talk about anything. Let's talk about the weather. How's your dog? What did your kids do? You can fill airtime with almost anything. But when you're in those hard conversations about the business, about the product, about a company, sometimes yeah. it's better to digest all that information versus jumping out to conclusion or adding your response. And then when it is your turn to speak or you believe you should be speaking, people will tend to listen more because it is only that smaller space that you are speaking. And that's a very powerful lesson to learn. What's the one trait you wish you could instill in every employee? 
And Shut Up and Listen um, might be one of them too. No, I, I one trade I would still on every employee. Um, I've been on a, uh, I'm going to use the word crusade, and it's not meant in a bad way. I have been on a mission, a crusade to enforce accountability. Mm. Um, I think it's an incredibly powerful word, but many times we don't hold people accountable for their actions, good, bad, uh, minor, major, whatever it may be. And this isn't a form of punishment. This isn't a form to say you didn't do something. This is a way of saying, this is what your responsibilities are. This is what your job entails. I'm going to praise you and make sure everybody knows it when you do well. But if something doesn't get done, you need to be aware that you were assigned this and it didn't get completed. So it's, it is both sides of the spectrum, but I think that we miss a lot of that in today's industry, that people are not held accountable and a lot of times mediocre jobs get done or exceptional jobs get done and the recognition, good or bad, is not present. Yeah, I really like that. And I think accountability is so important. And one of the frustrations when I work with different leaders is that they have a frustration about, hey, people aren't being accountable. But then you go back and you say, well, what are you holding them accountable to? And they may not be totally clear on the standard. And then they may not have communicated that standard to the actual employees that they're, that they're wanting to hold accountable. And so what I like about what you just said is, Hey, you know, there's some standard in there and you can even tell when they go beyond it and you want to recognize them, you know, either way. Um, It's goal setting. It's really all it is. is, And it may not be the formal process of writing out goals every quarter or every month. You must, you must, you must. That's one way of looking at it, but that's very academic. Many times the goals that you set are, look, we need to do this. And those goals should be aspirational. No employee should ever hit every single one of them or exceed every single one of them. They're the targets. And then it's up to you as the leader to motivate them to get there, whether it's financial rewards, whether it's recognition, whether it's, hey, we got something for you type of reward. But when you get someone motivated and targeting those goals, if they even come close that's a win because these are aspirational. If they fail miserably, it's not going, you did something bad. You didn't work at it. Maybe the goal was wrong. That's very possible. Or two, maybe they were not set up to succeed. Maybe they didn't have the tools to succeed. The market didn't succeed. The product didn't succeed. The messaging didn't succeed. But you are holding that person accountable to say, what do we need to do to fix to make that goal achievable? So it's a deeper understanding of just saying, look, you got to go write three articles a week where I expect your sales number to be that it's much more than that. Yeah. And I love the level of detail and that you you start with that. It becomes so much easier to hold them accountable for the results. You know, we, we, we often work with organizations around the catastrophic cost of turnover and and employee retention. And we find that the cost can be over $235,000 per employee per year. Uh, in, who, who leaves regrettably. Is this a cost that you think leaders should be tracking? I, I personally have not heard that financial number before, but whenever a regrettable lever uh, enters that part of the, the business workflow, like you, you have to exit them, the amount of cleanup, re-education, re-engineering to put someone else in, I wouldn't be surprised if the numbers in some cases are even higher than that. Oh, yeah. Rather, even for someone that's considered not regrettable, 
there can be still a huge cost of action to fill them, and even if they weren't an overachiever and they were mediocre. So any loss to the business in terms of uh, people resources does have an impact, but the regrettable ones, there are ways of making sure that doesn't happen. All of those can be from just constant communications or regular communications, your one-on-ones as an executive. Uh, something that we like to do as well is split level, com- split level conversations where we do not uh, poo-poo the notion of someone further down in the ranks from making a call to anyone. If someone wants to call the CEO, someone wants to call myself, whether sales, engineering, marketing, there is no boundaries between the departments and the levels. If someone feels they need to have that communication, you open it up, but rightfully from the top, you can reach all the way down to wherever you need to get answers or find something out. And that becomes very powerful to make sure that you don't have those regrettable leaders because they feel like they can talk to anybody for something, anything that may be um, impairing them or bothering them or yeah, that's instructing them. That sounds like a cultural advantage. If you can maintain that inside your organization, like you say, leaders can have the humility to have their boss call their direct report or their direct report call their boss's boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to have that humility and say, okay, that's okay. And have the other leaders not feel like the other leaders are doing something wrong. But this is just about opening up the channel of communication. I think that is an amazing thing to maintain. It's huge. But the the hard part is human nature is suspicious. We worry about (laughs) what my employee might say to my boss. But you know what? Get over it. If you're doing a good job and you're doing the right job, the people below you without bribing them are going to say constructive things. And if they say something bad, that is your opportunity for self-improvement. So this is a cultural thing. Yes, at least my organization has. But I, I would hope I could take or teach that trade to someone else. Get a simple tool to approximate your cost of turnover in 10 seconds or less. Right now, go to benfanning.com slash turnover. Did you know the average cost of turnover is $235,975 per employee per year? If you're like most leaders, you don't know your number. Go to benfanning.com slash turnover right now and download the simple tool to start getting a handle on this catastrophic cost. When's a time in your career that you had an unexpected twist or failure and it had to lead to your success on down the road? Uh, you know, I got asked this question recently in a piece, an article, and I wrote it out in detail, but I'll give it to you in summary. Um, when I first started doing those databases that I mentioned earlier, we didn't have proper PC hardware to run a lot of them. And these were literally uh, early days of Microsoft SQL. I mean, early, early days. Um, we had solicited Intergraph, if any of you remember that, uh, HP for ProLiant servers and a variety of others for bids. And I chose the HP. I had a favoritism to Intergraph. Back now, I look at it and go, I'm glad I didn't go with Intergraph. But we ended up choosing HP, and I misspec'd the processors. Um, I think I ended up going with regular Pentiums versus Pentium Pros, and the software we needed needed Pentium Pros or something like that. And it was painful. I had to come clean. I had to go to my bosses. I had to explain that I misspec'd the processors. The machines were already on order. Um, at that time, those things were not returnable. So what we did was we adjusted the licensing and software to handle those processors versus the pros. Costs were similar and the solution ended up working. 
But the honesty, transparency, looking back at a younger me to my management that I had made a mistake based on what we had already purchased turned into a benefit because there was an appreciation that, look, you didn't cost us tens of thousands of dollars. You caught it early enough. You didn't Mm -hmm. let it slide. We addressed it and corrected it, and it turned out fine. So I think that honesty trait or the ability to even admit that you have a failure um, helped me succeed early in that time. Yeah, honesty. That's huge versus the ostrich technique of sticking your head in the sand (laughs) and saying, I hope that doesn't come back to bite me and the keister on down the road. (laughs) You just went ahead and fell on your sword and said, hey, this is what happened. And And that's pretty cool that I was able to work it out that way. Yeah, honest mistake. But, you know, the other option is what sometimes happens, actually often happens. Someone leaves the business. We just bought a solution. It's not being installed correctly. And someone exits, regrettable or non-regrettable. And Mm. you're left hanging with a big project with somebody new or someone that has no clue as to what was said, done, or even the plans. Uh, Wow, that's an excellent point. When a mistake is made, sometimes the knee-jerk reaction is, how can we get them out of here? And instead, mm-hmm. like you say, they committed the mistake. They understand what's going on, and they're maybe the best people, best person to have in there to fix it because they understand versus having someone come in and say, hey, I have no idea what that person did. We're going to spend all this money and go in a completely different direction, but maybe there's a better move. There's a better way, and that's, again, back to the communications and employee retention mm-hmm. concepts. Look, we get there was a mistake. We're not mad. We're disappointed. You don't ostracize them based yeah. on that. But you go now. Even if you are mad, it? don't act mad. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not one of these, hey, go home Friday at noon and pack your desk. I am home and my desk is at home, right? Um, it doesn't work like <laughs> yeah, that. True. It doesn't. Yeah. Well, so starting to wind this thing up, what are three success strategies that every employee needs to keep in mind? Three success strategies for every employee that they should keep in mind. Um, I would say first is goals. And this ties back a little bit to what we've already mentioned. Um, An employee that is happy with what they do day in, day out, and has no aspirational goals is steady state. They're solid. They do what they do. But they're not going to get from some of the description that we talked about from being a reliability engineer to product management to CTO to CSO. You have to have those goals and that drive. But in order to do that, you can't step on the back of others. You have to be honest, humble, accountable, reliable all the way up those steps. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. any mistake you make, someone will be out there to basically capitalize on your problems because you were not honest Mm -hmm. all the way through. So goal setting, I want to be in the executive chain. I am happy where I am. I want steady state. Whatever your goal is, that's the first important piece to uh, someone's success. Second is if you're not happy in your job, maybe it's not the right job for you. Hmm. One of my early bosses um, basically told me, look, if you're not having fun going to work, you need to go do something else. Now, you will have bad days. You may even have bad weeks. Mm-hmm. But the point being is if you're unsatisfied with what you're doing, you're not doing the business any justification by coming in every day. That aura or that mindset will bleed out and will affect your productivity. And It shows up at some point, doesn't it? It absolutely does. Mm -hmm. And that same boss taught me, I think, the biggest lesson in the world. And I see people make this mistake every single week, day, year in a variety of concepts. Um, Don't mess with the money. 
This is so stupidly simple, but people do it all the time. Don't falsify your expense reports. Be oh. honest about what you're buying. Don't steal from the company. Don't go buy something just because you like it and it's the highest bid. You gotta be a good steward of the business's money and not steal from the business. Because as soon as you do that, you're not being honest, you're potentially a criminal and you can be terminated at the same time. So you have to treat the money of the business just like your own wallet. Be truthful and honest with it, especially when it comes to things like expenses. Yeah, and that, that's so important too, uh, to think about when you're being gifted a budget or granted a budget, that you make great ROI decisions too, right? Mm -hmm. That you're being very specific. I mean, stealing and falsifying is like the worst, worst case scenario, it is. but at least make sure you're making great, you know, you're placing great investments or great bets in the business that, that uh, are, are good investments, because that's how you're going to ultimately grow in your career and grow the budget for next year that, that you're going to be given. Yeah, negotiate it. Just because someone says that the, the product X is X thousands of dollars, I know it sounds bad to some people. Go to different VARs. Try to negotiate it. You'll be surprised. Negotiations is a key of licensing software and technology. Yeah. The price is not like the supermarket where it's $1.39 for bananas. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> well, but if you can get yeah. two bunches of bananas for $0.60 cents a bunch, you're going to get two. Well, the same is true for security solutions and technology. Do the so. math, people. So yes. wrap this up. What's a tool or gadget that's contributed to your success that you think listeners should consider? The biggest tool or gadget, I have to say, I am an Apple fanboy. I, I openly admit that. <laughs> I have my iPhones. I have my Mac minis. I have uh -huh. everything else. But I have to say the biggest gadget that has made me a better employee, a better worker, or more resilient are large monitors. Um, I'm sitting huh. in front of you in, two, in, in front of two 5K 42-inch wide monitors. I know that sounds incredibly excessive. 5K? Two 5K 42 inches wide. 42 inches. So you're basically working in front of a TV right now. But the height isn't like that. So it's honestly, the height's like this. Huh? It's just severely ultra wide. Okay. All right. So I can run four or five dozen applications simultaneously just by turning my head. And I get a complete perspective of everything that I care about in the day versus task switching, minimizing, copying, pasting, things like that. So I cool. would encourage anybody that is into tech or has the space, good, big monitors really help one bad eyes two being able to multitask if you're like that and there are even additional monitors available for laptops so if your company has just given you a laptop windows or mac mm -hmm. there are a variety of vendors that have magnetic ones or standalone ones that just plug right into the usb ports that can give a laptop two three screens so that you can accomplish the same goal in a small space or in an apartment or even traveling but to me the best development that's out there, you have big monitors to do a lot of work simultaneously. Right. Any specific monitors that you recommend? Uh, I have a preference for Samsung, but that's just me. All right, cool. Maury, thank you. Last parting thought for the listeners. Um, everyone just be safe. Uh, we are going through turbulent times. This is not political, but there's a lot of threats out there from cyber to uh, human viruses. Just want everyone to be safe and happy and um, succeed in their own endeavors. 
Right. Thanks, Maury. Thanks for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Take care. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.